Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of substance abuse, violence, firearms, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. January 31, 2013, started out like any other Thursday for Linda Bush. Winter's chill hung in the air, but she knew the cold wouldn't last. This was Texas, after all. That morning, Linda was practically on autopilot as she drove to the Kaufman County Courthouse, until she noticed two men on the sidewalk ahead of her. The smaller one was smartly dressed and carrying a briefcase, likely a fellow lawyer headed to work. A much larger man loomed over him, blocking his path. Not one to pry, Linda turned away and focused on finding a place to park. Then, a sudden noise split the morning air. The lawyer stumbled and fell onto his back. That's when Linda saw it. A gun glinted in the sunshine as the shooter fired again, once more at his victim and twice into the air. Afterward, he sprinted away. Linda rushed to the man lying on the sidewalk. His face was a bloody mess as she started CPR. It took a passerby crying out his name for Linda to realize. The injured lawyer was her friend and colleague, Mark Hassey. As she pumped his chest and begged him to keep breathing, sirens filled the air. Help was on the way. All Linda could do was pray it reached them in time. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we discussed Eric Williams' rise to prominence in the Kaufman County legal community. He settled in comfortably at the top until his sense of entitlement cost him everything. This week, Eric is forced to face the harsh consequences of his actions. Humiliated and furious, he was left with only one desire, revenge. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs, drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. By 2011... Eric Williams had been a respected member of the Kaufman County legal community for 13 years. 
Just four months into his term as Justice of the Peace, however, security footage showed him taking three new computer monitors from the IT department without authorization. When District Attorney Mike McClelland and Chief Prosecutor Mark Hassey saw the tape, they obtained warrants for Eric's arrest. Being paraded through the courthouse in handcuffs must have been humiliating. Baffled and questioning stares followed Eric down the halls and out the doors. But he wasn't one to let people see him sweat. Before I continue with Eric's psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Clinical and forensic psychologist Dr. Walter Torres outlined what he considered to be the four key ingredients to humiliation. First, a person must make a claim to a certain social status. In Eric's case, he'd run his recent campaign on the grounds that he was a just and moral person. Second, the claim must fail publicly. While getting arrested doesn't necessarily mean one is amoral, it certainly calls the person's integrity into question. People finding out that Eric had been arrested would have been bad enough, but it doesn't get more public than having the event witnessed firsthand by staff and coworkers. The third piece involves status. The claim of high status must be publicly undermined by someone with recognized authority. And finally, the fourth piece, the failure must serve as a judgment of character, specifically a lack of it. Ingredients three and four were still to come, but already Eric was feeling the painful sting of humiliation. At the sheriff's office, Eric used his one phone call to contact his wife, Kim Williams. When Eric told her what happened, Kim couldn't wrap her mind around the news. But Eric wanted her to focus. He needed her help. He told her to take the computer monitor he'd brought home a few weeks ago to her parents' house, now. He hung up before she could ask him any questions. The deputies came back in and escorted Eric to a private interview room for questioning. He barely tried to hide his shock. He constantly shifted in his chair and fidgeted, as if he physically couldn't accept what was happening. At times, a smile played across his face, which threw the officers. To them, nothing about his position was funny. There was a simple explanation for all of it, according to Eric. He'd taken the monitors to set up the video magistration system, which would allow justices from around the county to teleconference with area jails. He'd been keen on getting it going since he took office. During the search of Eric's office at the courthouse, deputies identified two of the three missing monitors. One was out in the open on Eric's desk, the other was in the back seat of his truck, tucked under a blanket. When asked about the third monitor, Eric was vague. He said he didn't remember a third one, so maybe he'd put that one back. The running theme of his response was that he simply couldn't believe he'd been arrested over this. Employees of the courthouse were allowed to go fetch toilet paper when they needed it. No matter how the deputies framed it, Eric couldn't see how this was different, or why he hadn't simply been asked to return the monitors without any legal action. The questioning went on for hours, not really getting anywhere. 
The authorities asked Eric to sign forms, giving consent for his private office and home to be searched before booking him. Luckily, Kim had already returned from depositing the third monitor at her parents' house when deputies arrived. She let them in and watched as they looked around, leaving empty-handed. Eric's personal attorney bailed him out and he was home not long after the officers left. Finally, Kim could ask him what in the world was happening. Eric maintained his incredulous act. In a perfectly believable tone, he told her that he couldn't figure out why everyone thought he'd stolen those monitors. The next day, his arrest made the front page of the Kaufman Herald. Eric held a meeting with his staff back at the courthouse, assuring them it was all a misunderstanding. In his words, he'd simply stepped on the wrong toes. Reading the story in the paper, many local lawyers and judges might have thought the same. To some people, it looked like the new DA was overreacting to a simple mistake. The phrase political witch hunt was thrown around. Maybe the public wondered. This was about something more personal. The Kaufman County legal community was a small world. Mike and Eric had known each other for many years by this point, and their history wasn't exactly rosy. Mike had run for the district attorney position once before in 2006. Not only had Eric publicly supported his opponent, he'd published a letter in the paper calling Mike's character into question. Mike's friends knew that he set the blame for his loss squarely on Eric Williams' shoulders. But the next time Mike ran, Eric was too busy with his own race to meddle. So in 2010, Mike McClellan's dream of becoming Kaufman County's district attorney came true. And he wasn't the only newbie in the office. Mark Hassey had been hired just three months before Mike's win. He was a highly experienced and respected criminal prosecutor from Dallas. The two men hit it off from the start. They were often found swapping stories in each other's offices. Despite earning the job as the district's top criminal prosecutor, Mike's background was in defense law, so he came to rely on Mark's expertise. And Mike deferred to Mark again in Eric's case, to a degree. While Mike practically salivated at the chance to nail Eric Williams, Mark wasn't nearly as excited. There wasn't any hard crime to speak of in a town like Hoffman, but Mark was used to going after bigger fish. A JP taking monitors without asking was, in his opinion, a glorified misdemeanor. In June, Mark persuaded Mike to let him offer Eric a deal. It was less about mercy and more about getting the whole thing over with. If Eric pled guilty to a classy misdemeanor, abuse of office, the only thing it would cost him was the JP position. He'd no longer be a judge, but he could at least continue to practice law. He thought it was a fair offer considering the evidence. Mike even called Eric's former boss and mentor, Judge Glenn Ashworth, to get him to convince Eric to accept. If the case went to trial, he could face harsher consequences. The monitors were worth less than $600 combined. For a regular citizen, the offense would have been a misdemeanor. For someone in public office, the charge automatically became a felony and would result in Eric being disbarred. 
Judge Ashworth tried to explain this, but Eric never cared much about the judge's opinion, and this was no exception. He wasn't swayed by the DA's bargain. In fact, he had a proposal of his own. He'd pay back the $600 and step down from the judgeship, but refused to plead guilty to anything. Neither the DA or the chief prosecutor could believe the audacity. Mark's resolve, which had been waffling for weeks, suddenly hardened. Within days, Eric was indicted on the charge of felony burglary of a building by a public official. This was the third ingredient of Eric's humiliating event, a recognized authority rejecting his claims. In this case, Eric was being accused by the very system he was meant to be a part of. This wasn't a complaint from a client. He was facing charges from the district attorney, a representative of the state. When the Texas Judicial Board learned of the charge against Eric, he was suspended without pay. But even after all that, Eric maintained that he hadn't done anything wrong. He told anyone who would listen that the monitors had always been for the video system. He was just trying to improve county services. Most people truly believed him, even if they didn't agree with how he'd gone about things. That wasn't going to be much help inside a courtroom, though. Over the course of the summer of 2011, Eric and his attorneys prepared for trial. Needless to say, Eric was stressed. He tried not to think about what might happen if he lost, but he was a planner by nature. He asked himself what type of work was out there for a disgraced, disbarred felon. The future was bleak. And the present wasn't much better. Money was running out fast. Kim's meager monthly disability checks weren't enough to live on. Payments trickled in from the private cases Eric had been working before the JP job, but those would run out soon. Eric claimed that on top of everything else, the county was withholding $10,000 in fees. Kim's heart broke for her husband. She knew he was a hard person to get along with, but as she saw it, Eric's livelihood was being purposefully destroyed simply because local officials didn't like him, and she couldn't forgive that. It was hard to believe it wasn't personal, especially the way Mike and Mark reportedly carried on at the courthouse. The topic of Eric came up at nearly every prosecutor's meeting. The pair seemed highly aware that public opinion was against them and they were on the defense. Eric's attorneys quickly caught wind of how the prosecutors talked about Eric around the office. With the entire establishment working against them, the defense hired a private investigator to re-interview key witnesses. In December of 2011, the investigator was working in the courthouse when she ran into Mark Hassie. He sat down with her on a bench in the hall and started chatting. Mark seemed to really love hearing himself talk. Without missing a beat, the investigator secretly turned on her recording device and happily listened. Over the course of the three-hour conversation, he called Eric a thief, a massive gun nut, and a narcissistic goofball. These comments were transcribed and sent to the defense team, including Eric. His rage constantly simmered below the surface, 
but he could feel himself growing furious as he read Mark's words. Eric already didn't like these guys. Now, his feelings morphed into pure hate. Coming up, Eric reaches rock bottom and things take a deadly turn. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. 44-year-old Eric Williams had never been friendly with District Attorney Mike McClelland or his chief prosecutor, Mark Hassey. But his dislike was rapidly transforming into hate. Mike and Mark were the ones who cost Eric his job, and now it looked like they wanted to bring him down completely. His rage grew at a frightening pace. After months of preparations and pretrial motions, Eric's stay in court finally arrived on March 19, 2012. The room was packed with spectators. It seemed nearly every local attorney was curious what both sides would argue. Eric's wife, 45-year-old Kim Williams, wanted to be there to show her support, but Eric insisted she stay home. Most people knew her health had been failing for many years. At this point, she rarely left the house at all. Eric hoped they'd feel sorry for him if they thought Kim couldn't make it because she was bedridden. It would have taken a lot more than sympathy to outweigh the prosecution's evidence, however. When they played the security footage of Eric carrying the monitors out of the IT department, the case was pretty much over. The jury deliberated for less than four hours before coming back with their guilty verdict. Throughout the proceedings, Eric sat at the defense table with his usual nonchalance. Even during intense situations, he was unreadable. But when the verdict came down, one spectator thought they saw a tear in his eye. With the guilty verdict, the fourth and final ingredient of humiliation was added to the mix. As Dr. Torres explained, this last step involves a judgment of character. Eric claimed to be an upstanding guy, a man who could be trusted with a judgeship. This verdict flew directly in the face of that. Eric was not the good person he claimed to be. 
Throughout the trial, Mark had labeled Eric calculating, manipulative, and even evil. The jury's decision put the stamp of approval on all of it. In June 2012, on top of losing his judgeship and law license, Eric was given two years of probation and 80 hours of community service. He was also ordered to pay a $2,500 fine. His lawyers might have been happy he'd avoided jail time, but Eric was furious. He'd been thoroughly defeated, publicly humiliated. There was nothing left for him to do now but retreat and lick his wounds. At least, that's what he let everyone think. Eric knew the moment of rest would be temporary. He just needed time to finish plotting his revenge. But for the people at the DA's office, the verdict was a massive win. Mike and Mark could often be heard bragging about their victory in the courthouse hallways. Mike declared that taking Eric's law license was the best thing he'd done in office. Eric was well aware of how Mike and Mark felt. It was all over the local papers. One publication quoted Mike as saying he wasn't happy that Eric got probation. He was hoping to send him to jail. The media brought Mike's words straight to Eric's home, which he hardly left anymore. Now that he too had nowhere else to be, Eric and Kim were holed up there nearly 24-7. At some point, Kim noticed he started taking antidepressants. Most days, Eric just sat around the house watching TV or playing games online. The same things that had been filling Kim's days for years. But they couldn't both go on like that. Money was already a problem before the conviction. Now that his paycheck was gone, the situation was desperate. Kim tried to encourage Eric to look for new work, but he wouldn't do it. Instead, he fixated on appealing the decision. He didn't need a new job. He just needed to get his old one back, no matter what it took. Despite the financial stress, Kim was sympathetic. She believed her husband when he said Mike and Mark had set him up. One afternoon, they went to visit Eric's parents and Kim suddenly couldn't contain her own anger anymore. She raged about suing the city for what they'd done, declaring, we're going to own Kaufman County. Eric had said little during that trip, but it's safe to guess he felt the same. In the months after the trial, his fury only grew stronger. By the end of the summer, Kim and Eric had completely depleted her retirement accounts. Their friends and family were worried, but Eric rejected all offers of help. Meanwhile, they were down to their last $30,000. The financial pressure made Eric desperate to get his career back. Yet even as his desperation and anger festered, he maintained his calm facade. According to psychiatrist Dr. Lance Dotis, Power over one's emotional state is a central component of narcissism, which isn't to say people with narcissistic tendencies don't have feelings, they just keep a tight leash on them. Eric definitely kept his emotions under wraps usually, but experiencing a psychic trauma like humiliation can lead to depression and anxiety. And this sense of helplessness is a trigger for narcissistic rage. According to Dr. Dodis, 
Narcissistic rage comes from the urge to re-establish dominance. If a narcissistic person is used to having total control over their emotions, it can be infuriating to find themselves at the mercy of their own feelings. Dr. Dotis describes narcissistic rage as a quote, deeply anchored, unrelenting compulsion with utter disregard for reasonable limitations. Basically, a person experiencing narcissistic rage will stop at nothing to regain their sense of power. Eric certainly seemed to fit the bill. He'd been stripped of his career, his financial security, and his internal equilibrium. To him, this was a massive injustice. He didn't just want to get his old life back, he needed to, and that meant destroying everything and everyone in his way. Eric had been mulling over the targets of his revenge for months. Now he was starting to think about a real plan of attack, and Judge Ashworth was at the top of his list. Eric didn't feel his former mentor had done nearly enough to help him during the trial, or when Judge Early Wiley, also on the list, took over his CPS cases. The judge lived just across a field from the Williams house. Eric described in detail his plan to sneak over in the dead of night and cut through the fence with bolt cutters. Once he had access to the house, Eric would shoot Ashworth with a crossbow, then gut him and pour napalm into his stomach. Kim didn't enjoy hearing Eric's gruesome fantasies, but she certainly understood his anger. She didn't think he'd actually go through with any of it. Even when he came home one day with a new crossbow, she rationalized it away. After all, he was always buying new weapons. For weeks, murdering Judge Ashworth was all Eric wanted to talk about. And then, seemingly without cause or explanation, his attention shifted to Mark Hassie. Again, he dove headfirst into designing the perfect crime. He took Kim with him to scout Mark's home, thinking that maybe he'd shoot the man on his own doorstep. Sitting in the car with him that day, Kim might have started to realize how serious Eric really was. Around this time, Eric received the official letter from the state bar that ordered him to turn over his law license. If he'd been looking for something to seal the deal on his murderous plot, he had it. Freshly furious, Eric told Kim that she would help him kill Mark. She tried to refuse, but he wasn't asking. She was his wife, he reminded her. Maybe that was when Kim remembered how close she'd come to no longer being Mrs. Eric Williams. Her fear of losing him clouded her mind, along with the opioid painkillers she'd been taking for years. That was another thing Eric had taken control of. Since the trial, he'd been picking up Kim's prescriptions and doling out the doses. Her days started to bleed together. The more incapacitated she became, the more she relied on Eric to help. He was the one making all the decisions. Kim was trapped. The more Eric thought about it, the more certain he became that he couldn't stop with Mark Hassie. As long as Mike McClellan was around, Eric stood no chance of getting back on the judiciary. So he decided he'd kill them both. 
It seems that by the end of December 2012, Eric knew exactly what he was going to do. On the 28th, he called an old friend from the state guard to help him rent a storage unit in a town 30 minutes away from Kaufman. Eric explained to his friend that the storage unit was for his in-laws and he couldn't put his own name on the lease. This was an obvious lie, but for whatever reason, the friend didn't suspect anything out of the ordinary. He agreed to help. Eric spent the next few weeks moving the entirety of his personal arsenal to the unit. Duffel bags full of guns, trunks packed with ammunition and tactical gear filled the space. He could have properly outfitted his own battalion. With the weapons stored away, the next thing on Eric's list was a getaway car. In January 2013, he found a cheap sedan on Craigslist and took Kim with him to pick it up. They stashed it in a parking lot near the storage unit. Everything was falling into place. Eric had a vision for how he wanted the big event to play out. He imagined himself as Wyatt Earp in Tombstone, facing down the true villain of the story in the town square. The closest he could get to that in Kaufman was the parking lot a couple blocks from the courthouse. The morning of Thursday, January 31st, 2013, might have felt like Christmas all over again. Eric woke Kim in the wee morning hours. They needed time to retrieve the car and get back before Mark arrived for work. The couple made it to the parking lot used by courthouse workers by 8.30 a.m. Kim was driving, but Eric was in complete control. He told her to make sure the car was running and pointed toward the exit so they could make a speedy getaway. Then they waited. It couldn't have been more than 10 minutes, but it felt like an eternity to Kim. Though she was physically present, she wasn't at all excited by what was about to happen. By contrast, Eric was exhilarated. The moment he spotted Mark's truck, he leapt from the sedan. He walked right up to Mark on the sidewalk and shoved him. Mark seemed ready to fight back until Eric raised his revolver. Mark Hassey's final words were, no, no, please, please, no. Eric shot him in the head at point blank range. Before anyone on the street had time to react, he ran back to the car and yelled for Kim to drive. Coming up, Kaufman County prosecutors find out that Mark Hassey's murder was just the beginning. Now, back to the story. On January 31st, 2013, 45-year-old Eric Williams shot Chief Prosecutor Mark Hassey mere steps away from the Kaufman County Courthouse. As Eric's wife, 46-year-old Kim drove them away, Mark lay bleeding in the street. Within minutes, bystanders had begun CPR and called 911, but he died from his injuries before the ambulance arrived. The EMTs were still attempting to revive Mark when Kim and Eric made it back to their storage unit. Parking the getaway car inside, Eric cleaned it of any fingerprints. Then he tidied himself, changing out of his all-black assassin's costume. The pair made it back home before 10 a.m. Kim took a Valium and went back to bed while Eric eagerly turned on the news. 
He settled in for the show while the rest of Kaufman erupted in chaos. Within two minutes of the shooting, the courthouse and most of downtown had gone into lockdown. Meanwhile, it was all hands on deck in the streets as beat cops and investigators started the manhunt. When someone told DA Mike McClellan the victim was Mark Hassey, he knew exactly who they were looking for. He told the sheriff that the assailant had to be Eric. The authorities couldn't deny the possibility and sent men to the Williams house. About a half hour after Eric and Kim returned home, there was a knocking on the front door. Eric checked and saw five sheriff's deputies and a constable he recognized from the courthouse. He knew he'd be a top suspect, but probably hadn't expected them so early. Eric had thrown on an old sling before he opened the door. He told the officers he'd recently had rotator cuff surgery. When asked for his whereabouts, he said he'd been out picking up prescriptions for his wife. Officers swabbed his hands for gunshot residue and looked around, but they found nothing. After the police left, Eric told Kim about his inspired move with the sling. He was sure he'd gotten away with it, telling her they wouldn't be back to question him anymore. With Eric seemingly ruled out, investigators didn't have much else to go on. Witnesses had conflicting and vague descriptions of the car. There was consensus that the killer got into the passenger seat, so he had an accomplice. The lack of shell casings meant the murder weapon was likely a revolver, but making a match would be tough. Theories included everything from old defendants with a grudge to the Aryan Brotherhood, but nothing seemed to stick for very long. As word spread that a prosecutor had been targeted, multiple departments joined in on the hunt. Soon, state and even federal investigators were searching for Mark Hassey's killer. At some point in the day, Mike stepped out to give a statement. In his black cowboy hat and full white mustache, the DA looked more like Wyatt Earp than Eric ever could. He told the cameras he hoped whoever did this was watching him. Knowing exactly who he was talking to, Mike said he was confident he would find the killer. We don't know for sure that Eric saw this broadcast. He couldn't get enough of the media coverage though, so it's likely he did. But it only would have hardened his resolve to finish the job he'd started. He just had to wait for the heat to die down. Then, on February 21st, the County Human Resources Director sent Eric a letter saying his health benefits were set to expire on March 31st. Insurance covered Eric's insulin pump and Kim's many medications and doctor's visits. Without it, money wouldn't just be tight, they'd be ruined. This meant Eric had until the end of March to complete his mission, take out McClellan to get a new DA, arrange a retrial and take his job back. There was a problem though. The transmission on the original getaway car had blown. Searching for a replacement, Eric found an older gentleman in Dallas selling an old Crown Victoria, a retired police car. It wasn't exactly inconspicuous, but it definitely appealed to Eric's wannabe cop sensibilities. Just as before, he paid cash. This time, he also used a fake name on the paperwork. 
With the new vehicle secured, Eric just needed to figure out how to commit his next murder. He considered doing it the same way, right in the square, but at the last second, he decided to switch it up. A change might throw police further off the trail. He planned to dress as a cop so Cynthia McClelland was more likely to let him in, knowing that would mean he'd have to kill her too. Kim hated the idea. That sweet old lady didn't deserve to die. She hadn't prosecuted Eric. But Eric simply shrugged and declared Cynthia collateral damage. Kim was in no position to fight back. Even without his many weapons, Eric would easily overpower her. He seemed to be everywhere all the time, constantly watching her. She walked to her parents' house daily and he followed her the whole way there. He already warned her that if she said anything, he'd kill them all. So when Eric told her it was time again, all she could say was okay. On Friday night, he modeled what he intended to wear to the murder the next day. Dark clothes, a helmet, bulletproof vest and goggles. He looked like a SWAT officer. The next morning, Saturday, March 30th, 2013, Eric and Kim once again woke up early. Switching vehicles at the storage facility, Eric drove this time. They were at the McClellan's house around 6.40 a.m. Within minutes, he was inside. Kim waited in the car, listening to the terrible sound of gunfire from the house. He was back in the car two minutes later. Eric was quiet and seemed nervous until they were out of the neighborhood. Then he broke into a grin, telling her, quote, his wife didn't die right away, so I had to put a bullet in her head. Just like after the Mark Hassey murder, Eric and Kim returned to the storage unit to stash the Crown Vic and clean up before heading home. Later that day, they went to Kim's parents' house. Eric was in a celebratory mood as he cooked everyone's steak. The bullet-riddled bodies of Mike and Cynthia McClelland were found that evening. Once again, Eric Williams was at the top of the suspects list. Asked about his whereabouts, Eric claimed he'd been with Kim all day helping her parents. They tested his hands again for gunshot residue, but Eric told them he hadn't fired a gun in two years. Officers escorted Kim and Eric home. By now, it was after 10 p.m. Eric turned on the TV and pulled up the news on his computer too. He watched the coverage for the rest of the night, smiling. He felt so untouchable that he decided to email the investigations tip website. He began the message, do we have your attention now? He promised no further killings, but demanded the resignation of a local judge. To make sure they knew he was the real deal, he told them about the type of gun and ammunition used to kill Mark Hassey. Details only the killer would have. If his demands were met, he told them his superiors will see this as a first step to ending our actions. Like a cat with a wounded bird in its clutches, Eric couldn't resist the chance to toy with law enforcement. For him, one of the best parts of his spree was making the police look like fools. What he didn't know was that the authorities were already looking at him more seriously than they had before. 
Eric's newest residue test came back positive. In other words, he had fired a gun or handled one that had been fired recently. Investigators sent officers to talk to Eric at his home with a hidden recording device. As the men looked around and chatted, they saw gun parts all over his house belonging to an AR-15, the exact type of gun used to kill the McClellans. It was enough to get them a search warrant for Eric's home. Officers and agents swarmed the place. Next to Eric's computer was a slip of paper with the user ID for the anonymous tip website that matched the messages from the killer. At 12.30 a.m., April 13, 2013, Eric Williams was arrested for making terroristic threats. His bond was set at $3 million. It was basically a stopgap measure to get him in custody while police continued to search for evidence. The next day, investigators received a call from the friend who had rented Eric's storage unit back in December 2012. There, they found his arsenal of weapons, including guns he had supposedly sold. None of them turned out to be the murder weapons from either the McClelland or Hassey cases. Still, officials were confident they had enough to bring capital murder charges. Shortly afterward, Kim was brought into the sheriff's office for questioning. She had been taking extra medication to settle her nerves after the murders, and was even more groggy than usual. When deputies led her to an interview room, she didn't think to ask for an attorney. After hours of nonstop interrogation, Kim finally broke. She confessed to everything, including the fact that she was terrified of Eric. She just did what he told her, afraid he'd hurt her otherwise. Her claims were taken with a grain of salt, Texas has a law that states any person knowingly participating in an act that leads to murder is just as guilty as the killer. Kim was also booked and charged with capital murder. In jail, she was taken off the opioids she'd been on for years. With time to herself, free of Eric and the drugs, she finally found clarity. Rather than relief, the gravity of the situation crashed down on her three people were dead because she hadn't stopped her husband. Guilt and shame soon turned to anger. Eric had dragged her into this mess, and she knew now that ultimate responsibility lay at his feet. She was determined to force him to face justice. Prosecutors decided to separate the charges. They would try Eric for the murder of Cynthia McClelland first, that way, if anything went wrong in court, they'd have two more chances to convict him. In December 2014, the trial went exactly as they hoped. The jury came back with a guilty verdict. During the punishment phase, prosecutors sought the death penalty, which was where Kim's testimony came in. Sitting on the stand in her black and white prison uniform, Kim told them everything she knew, she revealed that Eric planned to kill at least two more people if he wasn't caught. Her words sealed Eric's fate and he was sent to death row. As of 2019, Eric was still filing appeals in his case. To this day, he has never admitted guilt or shown remorse for his actions. Kim accepted a deal after Eric's trial was finished and pled guilty to playing a role in Mark Hassey's murder. 
She is currently serving a 40-year sentence. Unlike Eric, she is full of regret. With no chance at freedom until 2033, Kim has nothing but time to remember and hope for forgiveness. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back next week with another episode. For more information on Eric Williams, we found In Plain Sight by Catherine Casey extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Georgia Hampton and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder, we'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.